Hey, this is Asia Dang. And this is Laura Varney, and you're listening to Heavy Topics with Lightweights. Hello, hello. Hello. So we're just going to jump into things. Um, we're talking to our friend, Megan. I have known her for, God, I hate saying this, but like 10 years crazy like over over 10 years we went to undergrad together at usc or usf and um she is just so informative we touch about we touch upon this in the end of the podcast but we originally wanted her on because she um is a teacher she's an educator and she just knows some shit about the school system and it's just honestly so upsetting But we thought it was important to have her on to talk about race. As a white woman, she's married to a black man and has a biracial black child. And I said this before, even though I myself am biracial, my story is significantly different. Like I can't even speak to the biracial journey of a black child um, growing up in America. So we thought it was important to have her on to speak to like just how she's feeling and all of that stuff. But she did bring up a good point. Like we do need to interview a black woman. Like we need to talk yeah, to her. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We, we definitely, definitely do. Um, and there are, so, there are so many directions we can go in that, but um, for sure we need to get someone on soon. And she just gives us, she gave so much information just about um, raising her biracial son, about being married to a black man and just about, um, how we need to move forward and like ways that we can move forward, whether it is in relation to the educational system or just owning being up a parent. to our white, like d- down low white supremacy that we all yeah. have. Yeah. She, it was a really, really interesting eye opening conversation. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited so, for you guys to hear this. So, so bummed. My internet was fucking whack as fuck during this interview so i'm hoping it'll it might be a little hard to hear some of the thoughts but i think that overall you'll get exactly what the fuck megan is talking about because she just schools all of us remember follow us on instagram at heavy topics if you're following right now you will see a very interesting video on our instagram stories that really just shows the relationship of Asia and I and how comfortable we are with each other and um, it's just who we are at our core. So I think you guys should check that out at Heavy Topics. And remember, if you're listening to this podcast, click the subscribe button because it really does help us. And as always, please rate and review. We appreciate you guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right, Megan, how are you? Thanks so much for joining us on our podcast. Yeah, thank you for being here. We're so excited. We've been talking about having you on for probably longer than I've actually asked you to be a part of this podcast. Oh, I feel so important. (laughs) You are important. You are very important. I just thought it was um, important to have you on as a mother of a Black biracial child to see, like, how are you feeling right now? And just talking about all this fucking crazy ass shit going on. 
Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is, like, I definitely got that question um, a lot lately, but I kind of feel more or less the same as I always have, because on some level, shit is not that different right now. I think just a lot of people who haven't really been aware of what's been going on are becoming a lot more aware, which is great to see. Um, But we more or less are just sort of feeling the same. I mean, Black people are still being killed by the police, right? Um, Here in Chicago, we're having an influx of young children being shot, which has been really heavy on our hearts. Um, Wow, I haven't heard anything about that. Yeah, Yeah, me neither. Yeah, we just moved to the west side of Chicago in a neighborhood called Austin. And um, just like maybe a couple weeks ago, a three-year-old was shot and killed about half a mile from where we live. Oh my God, by who? Um, I think it was gang-related. He was with his stepfather, I believe. Oh, no. Um, yeah, and just last night, another three-year-old was shot in a different neighborhood, Englewood, which is on the south side. So it's definitely something that is on the hearts and minds of a lot of people here in Chicago, just trying to figure out how we deal with this gun violence. My God, that is terrible. Like I can't think of Um, heart-wrenching to say the least. So what is, um, I have been to Chicago once, but I'm not super familiar with the neighborhood breakdown. I know that there is an area in Chicago that is heavier in gun violence, right? Which, is that the South side or which which area is that? Um, I mean, there's a lot of neighborhoods that I think are like heavily impacted by gun violence. Definitely the West side and the South side mm-hmm. are the most impacted. Um, so what are, it, that's so, I mean, I know we're kind of like jumping around here, but what what would there, what what would a solution be to solving gun violence in Chicago? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like the million dollar question right now. I guess um, Donald Trump just wrote help. I didn't get a chance to read it yet because I I don't really enjoy um, paying attention to things that Donald Trump says. Right. But um, (laughs) I think that everyone has a different opinion. I had a friend of mine over last night who grew up on the South Side, and she was actually the one who posted it on Twitter. Um, When I woke up this morning, I've been having issues with insomnia. So I was up at like 3.30 this morning, and I saw her Twitter post about the three-year-old being shot. And she said something like, you know, um, we need parents to raise their kids better. Um, So I think there's a lot of different... um, solutions that people would put out there that more micro individualized we need to each be like responsible for ourselves and our kids and then of course there's macro institutional type solutions where we look at um, communities and what kind of access and options they have. Um, I was reading an article the other day written by a young man who grew up in Auburn Gresham which is on the south side um, very close to where the child was shot last night and he just talked about how you know he was targeted by the police he was arrested for something he didn't do he was put in prison for five years he was shot um, and injured to where it took years for him to recover and walk properly when he got out of prison he wasn't able to find work he's now on house arrest and just the various ways that the system is designed to really keep certain people, right, in this case, Black men, in a certain position within society. And if we don't really confront, I think, on 
on some level that, right, what sort of access um, and opportunities people really have, then we'll find that people will continue to take the quote unquote system into their own hands because a lot of times with the gun violence, it can be as petty as, you know, somebody said something about me on social media that I didn't like, um, or, you know, somebody looked at me the wrong way and a gun gets pulled and now, you know, we're talking about people getting shot and killed. So I think there's definitely a range of ways that society and individuals could take more responsibility. But I would personally say, until we really start building up communities, not a whole lot is going to change. Because if you're born into that, and you're never really given the opportunity to get out of it, what other choice do you have? Right. And it's so interesting that um, the tweet you read said something about kind of like taking individual responsibility, but we were just talking about before we started recording how no one is taking responsibility for COVID and wearing masks. Right. Right. (laughs) They can choose what level of responsibility they want to take for what kind of issue we're talking about, which is hilarious. Yeah. And I, I certainly think, you know, part of humanizing people is definitely seeing them not only, you know, with compassion and empathy, but also as individuals capable of handling the responsibility of being a member of society. So I I think there is a danger, especially like as a lot of white people sort of wake up to what black people have been experiencing for centuries in this country, right, to kind of just like, oh, it's so sad and you know, it's not their fault. And I think, you know, there has to be a little bit of nuance there because you don't want to dehumanize people into the other extent to where you don't think that they're actually capable of taking responsibility for their decisions. But, you know, I think we all can really, you know, just speak from our own experience. And when you grow up rich and white and the world is sort of handed to you on a platter, you don't realize that that's not necessarily the circumstance for, a lot of people in this country and in the world. And so I, I, I'm very, um, you know, it's good to see that people are taking more notice and paying attention and trying to really understand the Black experience. But at the same time, you know, it's, the work has to go a little bit deeper because we need to see action um, right. from white people, not just sort of this, uh, you know, viewing from the sidelines and feeling so sorry, you know, you can't stop it feeling pity for people. That's dehumanizing as well. Right. Um, On Facebook, you wrote this long post and I was actually kind of surprised that you wrote it. And it basically was a post about your followers kind of being pro-Black. I mean, you said like, if you love uh, pictures of Emmett, who's your son, and comment about how cute he is yet, you're silent about Black Lives Mattering, I'm going to delete you as a friend. Sure am. <laughs> I just thought that, like, I don't know why. I still, I was... I still got a purge. I have right. it. That was kind of my warning shot. And now <laughs> I've kind of like given them a month, you know, to like get right. with the program. Why did you feel like you needed, was there something that you saw on your page that like triggered that response? Or was it just everything going on that you needed to make this public statement? 
Yeah, it was funny because I'm really not a big like social media person. That's probably why it struck you because I mostly yeah. <laughs> just like randomly post pictures like once every six months. Right. But I think it was a mix of, you know, the protests were happening and they were turning on some level into riots, which of course like there's varying uh, speculation as to who was turning those protests into riots. I'm not convinced that like, it was predominantly black people destroying black neighborhoods, but that um, is a conversation for another time. But I was seeing just like a lot of people who, you know, have opinions about it, white people or non-black people of color. Um, but I didn't really feel like there was a, a sentiment or like a um, support of black people. And I think that's kind of where I've come to um, over the past few years is like, instead of talking about racism, I just wanna talk about anti-blackness. Because the reality is that anti-blackness pervades like almost every single culture. Sometimes even in black culture, there's a degree of anti-blackness. And so I really wanted to bring to people's attention that like my son Emmett is black. So when you love pictures of him, I want you to also love the fact that he's black. And part of loving that he's black is supporting black people. And if you have the time and energy to go onto Facebook and comment about the protests and the riots that are going on, and you don't realize that on some level, criticizing the protests because some of them turned into riots is a form of anti-blackness. Like, I think what was also happening for me is like, I have to protect my family from that, right? And I don't really need people having access to my family to you know, my husband and my child who are not really focused on being pro-black and acting pro-black and developing a consciousness that is pro-black. So I don't know, it was kind of funny. It was just like a random Sunday afternoon and I showed my husband, I was like, is this too much? He's like, post that shit. And I was, I was, you know, nervous because it's hard to put yourself out there. Like even doing this podcast, I don't really put myself out there like this, but um, I just felt like people really needed a wake up call. Um, and I don't, I don't know if it was my post, you know, I mean, it could have been, but I definitely felt like some of the people in my life started posting more, started donating, like really taking like action steps to being more pro-black. And that was something I needed to see. And I think on some level too, like I got a lot of support from my husband, Trey's family. And that was nice too, because I want them to know that I am like unabashedly pro-black. And I think that that's something within interracial relationships, especially when you have white people with black people, there can still exist, you know, anti-blackness even in that space. And so I really was uh, happy to see that they felt, you know, that I am really here for Black people and my husband and his family and, you know, creating a space for our son Emmett where he can really thrive. It's interesting that you say that there's still some anti-Blackness in the interracial relationship space. Like, that's an interesting concept to me because I have at times thought of that. Um, and I just wonder what that must feel like and kind of how that even happens, you know? So when you say like how that even happens, you mean like how could there be anti-Blackness if like a white person supposedly loves a Black person? I mean, I guess I understand how because I think it's just, it's kind of 
for a lot of people, it's been ingrained in our culture for so long, but it just seems, um, I don't know, like the thought of that just seems really, really hard to grasp, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty twisted. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot that you have to unpack. I think there's even like um, a fetishization of Black people that white people need to be aware of, where it's like, oh, I love Black people. I love your hair. I love your skin, right? And like, you can love all those things about a person, but it's about like the way that you see them. Are you humanizing them? Are you dehumanizing them? Um, and I think sometimes people who are in relation, white people specifically, but honestly, like any non-black person who's in a relationship with a black person can think like they're absolved from racism, from anti-blackness, from white supremacy. And it's just not the reality. Cause like you said, this is a very pervasive energy within our culture. And so I think a very important part of loving own sort of, um, tendency towards white supremacy type thoughts, anti-blackness, and like I said, that fetishization and just really making sure that you're seeing your partner as a human, um, humanizing their experience and really hearing it because sometimes what will happen is people will be in relationships with black people, they'll have kids with black people, and um, those white parents can do a lot of harm to their black kids if they aren't really there to create a space for those kids to thrive and to really live their experience and hear it. And, you know, sometimes that can be a hard pill to swallow when your partner says like that shit was racist and your instinct is to get defensive and go, oh, but I didn't mean it that way. Or my family member didn't mean it that way. And, you know, it's really about honoring what they're experiencing. It's not up to us as white people to decide what's racist anymore. Like that has never really been our place, but I think more and more white people are coming to the realization that we need to sort of step back. As the white person in the relationship, have you ever caught yourself kind of in a place like that where you felt like maybe you said something or your partner pointed out that you said something um, that maybe was inappropriate or seemed racist at the time or was racist? I think more so there's just sort of, um, you know, a pervasiveness of what it's like to move through the world as a black person, in this case, a black man, and how much that impacts just everything that my husband experiences. So we've had like conflicts to where I didn't really think race was an aspect of it and it was very much an underlying aspect of it. Um, I don't want to get too personal just because I kind of want to honor our relationship in that space, but there have definitely been times where he said to me, you know, this is how this felt and it's in part because I'm black and because I've had this experience my whole life and it's really had taken me back to go, wow, like, damn, I didn't realize that that would be a part of what is going on here. Um, and I think more so, cause I, I, you know, every white person is kind of on their own little journey to figure out, you know, how they're gonna reckon with their white supremacy. There's certainly a lot of white people who 
don't think they're racist and who don't think they're, you know, they have any issues with white supremacy. And so, and some of those people are in relationship with black people and some of those black people that they're in relationship with might disagree with some of the stuff I'm saying here, right? Like it's just, um, everyone has their own experience, but I think for me, I've done a lot of work and I have no problem saying like, yes, I'm a white person. I am totally aware of the fact that being a white person growing up in the United States, especially growing up with a lot of economic privilege um, has uh, made me on some level a racist person. Like I, I don't have a problem with that. Like I've had arguments with family members where I'm like all white people are racist and they aren't ready to hear that. But what it means for me is just almost like I'm, you know, admitting this is a problem. I said that once to a room full of people and a black woman framed it as kind of like an alcoholic who's in recovery, always has to start off by saying, hi, my name is Megan and I'm an alcoholic. It's like, hi, my name is Megan and I'm a white person and I'm racist. And that's kind of where I start from. And so I think, cause I've done a lot of that work, we haven't had as much of those issues where like I've said something or done something that's been explicitly like felt by him as racist, but it's certainly, race certainly is something that plays like a huge part of our relationship. Um, and it's certainly something that's come up with my family members. And so there is a piece where I think as a white person, you have a responsibility to really um, hold the safety of your partner. And in this case, your child um, it, at the utmost priority, even if that means, you know, calling out your family members when they do some it's kind of like when people say um like i don't see color but now that's not necessarily the point right it's the point is to like see it and then recognize not only your privilege but their journey as well yes sorry i didn't mean to cut you off it's like oh my god it just like makes my skin crawl at this point because i'm like are we still there people like i really thought that like people got that colorblindness is like not the answer. And somebody pointed out like the same people who say they don't see color are very quick to like point out things like black on black crime. So like they see color for that. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think it's bullshit. Nobody doesn't see color. It's like the first thing that you see. And what's more is, you know, people might say, well, I just treat everyone equally, but I mean, we're human, right? We're, We've all moved through the world in different bodies and the way that we move through the world really impacts, you know, our experiences, our access, um, the things that create like who we are. And so if you're unwilling to recognize that to me, you're just sort of like living in some privileged bubble. And I mean, that probably works really well for you, but you have, if you are an empathetic person who wants the world to be a better place, then you have to really think about what kind of harm you might be causing with a mindset like that, because everyone sees color, like, give me a break. <laughs> I just right, don't because even know I mean, how to, you like, can, like, like you said, everyone sees color. It's one of the first things that you do see just as a human being, and you can still, see that and admit that you see that and admit that you have privilege over someone else, but still try and be better and do better and care about the other person. Like it's not, it doesn't have to be a negative thing that you see that and that you notice it. 
Right. Well, and in a lot of ways, it is negative, right, because of the way our society has been constructed. So part of like the the privilege of saying I don't see color is I'm, the color that I am like is the, is a good color. So it helps me move through the world, right? Black people certainly see color because they have been reminded every day of their lives of the color of their skin. Like that's part of the difference, right? Um, I remember when I was in grad school, I read to this day, one of my favorite authors of all times, Lisa Delpit, and she talked about the um, rules basically of privilege and power. And part of that is that you never have to be taught the rules, right? If your culture is the dominant culture, if your culture is the culture of power, you, you never learned that you had to be that way. That's just how you are. Right. People who aren't a part of the dominant culture have to be explicitly taught. This is how you're expected to speak. This is how you're expected to act. And they they do, you know, what people call code switching. Um, so, yeah, it's just I cringe with the, you know, colorblind thing because I I get that people mean it to, to say like, you know, this post-racial society, but like we're not there. I don't know what to tell you. It is not post-racial. We have a long way to go. So in the meantime, if you're interested in getting to a post-racial society, you should definitely admit that you see color and start to unpack some of the biases that exist within you dealing, you know, when you see that color. I think that's the hard thing, though, is people have a hard time kind of looking deep into themselves and criticizing themselves in a way. Like people yeah. don't like to admit when they're wrong. They don't like to admit when they have a problem with something. Like it's, I guess, kind of embarrassing, you know, to some extent. So it's just like to be very- It's, it's shameful, right? It's like no one wants to go into that place where they feel shame. It's really hard. I, I feel thankful because I have friends who, and am surrounded by a lot of people who- um, even though it's difficult, want to be better, right? Um, but it, that doesn't make it any less difficult. Whether we're talking about race or anything else, when you're looking inside yourself and realize like, fuck, like I've really messed up in the past. Like I've said some shitty things. I've done some shitty things. I've acted in a way in which like maybe before didn't realize that like that could hurt someone else, you know? Um, and I was having this conversation with a friend the other day and she was just like, it sucks. Like it's hard because I'm like trying to, like you said, kind of unpack those biases and like make a change and really understand the way that I think and kind of change that way. I think to make things better. Um, and she's like, I think about certain things that maybe I said in the past that I didn't even know. I didn't even realize at the time were racist comments. And I think about them now and it's like just this flood of shame. And I mean, I think a lot of us have can feel that way if we really take a second to think about it. And it is hard, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do the work, right? Like that's part of the process to make things better for yeah, black I mean, people, sure, you know? shame is... A difficult emotion to reconcile but I mean we do it for everything else yeah. like I think there's like a real aversion here because at the end of the day you know 
for a lot of people, especially like um, one thing that I, I posit to a lot of people is like, well, do you have any black people in your life? Like, are you close with any black people? Um, and that's an important thing to think about too, right? If what's the answer to that question and why is that the answer to that question for you? And so, you know, when the shame in some ways doesn't like, you know, you feel shame because you screwed up on like a project and you got a bad grade that like directly impacts you in some ways, this doesn't directly impact people enough. So they kind of feel that shame initially and go, okay, I don't like this. This doesn't feel good for me. And so that's where I'm like, well, you know, where's the empathy, right? right. This isn't just about you. You can't sit there and, you know, vote Democrat and be like, I want the world to be a better place. But then when it comes time to like own your own shit, it's like, well, this doesn't feel good. Like, I think I'm good. So how do we create a world that is much less harmful for black people? Like literally like black people are still dying at the hands of the police and black women are still dying disproportionately in childbirth and, you know, the list goes on. So it's like, I don't have a lot of space for kind of the coddling of like white people who are finally doing this work. I'm like, welcome. I'm glad you're here, but like deal with that. Like it's time to move <laughs> on. We have people who's like their lives are literally at stake here. So yeah. I, you know, I understand that I can kind of come off harsh, you know, Asia knows me very well. It's just sort of the way I've always been. It's like, all right, well, you know, I, I'm sorry you feel bad. I'm not, right, obviously. But, like, Black people are dying. That's way <laughs> I don't more. Think, I don't think that's harsh. I think that's stating facts of yeah, what's going on. Yeah, that's very Megan. I don't think that's joining harsh. Us. Welcome to the club. Now get your shit together. People are still dying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, no, and, like, and it's hard on some level for me because – I've had these conversations with my family members and they feel that I'm very abrasive and I don't have any compassion for them. And it's like, well, part of the problem is white people always want to center themselves. Like I even said to Asia when she asked me to come on this podcast, like, are you sure you want like a white woman? I mean, we have enough white women talking about shit and like, you know, I should, I was, I said to myself, you better say it at some point, but like everything that I've ever learned about anti-racism and racism in general has come from a black person and more probably a black woman. So like all I'm doing here is regurgitating. I don't want anybody listening to this to be like, oh wow, she's like really figured this shit out. No, like I just read a shit ton of books and I listen to black women. And so, you know, it's hard because it, we want white people to join in, in to these conversations, but at the same time, like join in by listening. And it, even like the first time I said to a room full of people, like all white people are racist when that black woman made the point about like alcoholics sort of owning that before she could make that point, she raised her hand for like a full five minutes. There was this white guy, this like old white guy who's like, that's just really hard for me to hear. And I don't think you're right. It's like, sir, we are not here to talk about your fucking feelings. Like go get a therapist, right? You could pay somebody to help you work through all that shame. But like, it's, you know, if you're really here about this movement that is moving, I hope, right, right now, it feels like something is shifting, then all that shit with like your shame and your feelings, you gotta do that on your own. When it's time to show up, like you're there for black people. And you know, that's kind of my piece about that. 
Well, I think it's part of the process though. I think, yes, of course you have to do it on your own. Like you do it internal, it's internal work, but I think it is part of the process, right? Like for yeah. sure we have to, we have to stand up and do work, which is hopefully. I think a lot of people get happen. stuck at that process is maybe right. my, my pushback right now is just right. kind of like when the conversation revolves only around like you as a white person and how you're feeling you're not doing it right. Right, of course. That's that's harmful, especially if you're doing that to a black person or a person of color. Don't do that. If you're white and you're listening to this, don't do that. <laughs> right? Maybe talk to your other white people about it or like maybe go get a therapist. But do not call your black friends and spend time talking about how hard this is for you because they move through the world as a black person. You have no idea what hard is actually. As white people, we have to be cognizant of when we are centering ourselves and taking up space, right? That was my my worry with like even doing this podcast is like, well, do I really need to take up space? Because right now, everything I'm hearing from black people, and like I said, mostly black women is, shh, right. <laughs> talking. <laughs> so I've been trying to, you know, also honor that. Which is great, but I also feel like you are providing some really valuable insight. So, well, I'm happy to be here, you know, and I think <laughs> that sometimes it helps uh, white people to hear it from white people. But um, I definitely think within the world of anti racism and, you know, becoming a more pro black person, you definitely want to learn from black people. So, if you're sort of gravitating towards white voices, that's also maybe not the right path because there are a lot of white people right now offering anti-racism, you know, advice and strategies, but I guarantee they, I'm sorry, they jack that shit from black people. And that is like just another form of white supremacy in action. And you know like, what's even me saying that I got that from a black woman, right? Like, again, like all of this stuff that we learned, we learned from black people because we've never experienced racism ourselves. It's really interesting because, you know, I'm trying to stay hip with the kids and I'm, I'm on TikTok <laughs> these days, um, but um, I keep on seeing videos of, how should I say this, um, of black people kind of like responding to videos of white people being pro-black, like saying kind of pro-black points, I guess. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that it means more, you get more views on TikTok for it coming from a white person than it coming actually from a black person. Damn. Which is yeah. exactly what you're talking about. Interesting. Yeah. So they're saying the same thing, but it's more, more meaningful. It's more meaningful to be pro-black coming from a white person than coming from- Well, more person. meaningful for who? The algorithm. I don't know who, just- people are just more drawn to it, I guess. I don't, I don't know why, but it's just that you could have the same video saying the same thing, one person being white, one person being black, and the person being white will have more views and more engagement. Yeah. I mean, well, it, to me, it's just proof of white supremacy. <laughs> it's like, yes, that, that sort of proves the point, right? Yeah. But I think the next step would be if those white people are really really pro-black I mean I don't know is there a way to like get their face to start it and then like switch over to the black person because like 
that's kind of what a lot what I've seen people doing to this sort of like pass the mic type of stuff where you you know as a white person if you're really about um amplifying black voices you use your platform to get black people on there and using their voice and given that space yeah I've seen a lot of that on Instagram lately which is really cool a lot of friends of mine and just random people who I might follow um just bringing in other uh black people in the wellness space or whatever space they're in and lending their platform um and saying like listen you know this is you know what you're talking about just as much as I do let's collaborate let me give you this platform and it's really cool to see how people are getting together you know what I mean and just sharing that voice because it's a really important one to be heard obviously I want to because you've kind of been touching around around this point is how do we kind of develop this society that's pro-black and you're also in a unique position to where you are an educator and Uh Trey is an educator as well for early childhood education. So how do you implement, like, I don't know if it's called like pro-black lessons um, into, because what what are you teaching? Like real, you're teaching like really young children now, right? Well, for the past four years, I've actually been teaching upper elementary And that's what I'm going to be doing next year, third, fourth, and fifth graders. Um, But before that, I taught kindergarten and preschool. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of people out, like, putting stuff out there. So there's definitely a lot of tools. Again, like, I would always encourage people to go first for stuff being curated by Black people. Um, But, you know, my first instinct to answer that question is just teaching about Black history, right? I think even... In the past few months, people have learned about things like, you know, the Tulsa massacre that they didn't know about, right? Um, Even being with Trey, I have learned histories that I did not know about. I have seen movies that I had never heard of. Um, And I think it's a really important piece of the puzzle where we are learning um, about things that have happened in the not so distant past, right? in the past hundred years or so where black communities were just eviscerated, where, you know, black communities that were building wealth were just totally destroyed. Um, because a lot of people say things like, oh, well, I didn't own slaves or, you know, that was centuries ago. And it's just really not white supremacy is a beast and it lives on. Um, so I definitely think it's about, you know, framing stories teaching kids to be critical thinkers, right? Who wrote this? From what perspective is it? Like whose story is being told? Whose story isn't being told? Um, And then certainly teaching kids how to name things like race. I think there's still real aversion to just naming your race and talking about it. That's sort of the tendency towards colorblindness. It's easier when you have a district or a school or a principal or administrator who's supportive I'm very happy this year. I'll be working for um, a principal who's a black woman. I'll be in a district that's run by a black woman. Um, You know, there's still uh, decisions that are made that uh, don't entirely feel pro-black. So it's not like a cure-all, but I think definitely um, the leadership makes a big impact in terms of what you're able to do in schools. But then certainly the parents too. Um, I think it benefits 
all kids to learn about history, like all the history, right? Not just the whitewashed history, but I think it's really important for black kids to learn about their history. And that's something that I've definitely heard from uh, Trey is that, you know, he was never taught his history. Like black kids are not taught their stories in a way besides, you know, black people were enslaved. And that's not even framed properly, right? I was just reading a, a Twitter um, thread about how to change language to where it actually says, you know, these were people who were enslaved. The, the quote unquote slave owners were human traffickers. That's what they were, right? right? We don't we don't use that kind of language and we need to. Um, and a lot of people go back and forth on, you know, when it's appropriate to start that type of history. And I would defer that to people who are way more sort of, um, I don't know, like people, a lot of people have been doing that work. So I think that they would have better answers to those types of questions. But for me, I definitely, we, I, when I worked on the South side of Chicago as a preschool teacher, we were teaching the kids about um, black history at three years old. And I was working with a black woman when I did that. So um, that was something I felt like we had a lot of support from the people at the school, as well as the kids' parents to really teach them their history uh, for better and for worse. How does that work? Because like you said, a lot of it is like whitewashed and leaves certain things out and uses different terms just in the education system, does that come directly from your principal that, or do you make those decisions as a teacher, what you're teaching and how you teach it? Both. Um, I think it comes down from the top, but you can always go rogue. I certainly do. (laughs) Um, Surprise, surprise. Yeah, I mean, one thing I like about um, Chicago Public Schools, who I'm gonna work for this year, is they adopted the 1619 project. Um, And that is a really um, wonderful tool to help kids understand American history through a very, very different lens. It's gotten a lot of heat um, from, (laughs) surprise, surprise, predominantly like white male historians um, who say, you know, it's not accurate, but the premise is the 1619 is when um, the first people came over who were enslaved Africans and it starts American history at that point. So um, is that, the other point. does that coincide with the podcast 1619? It might, I haven't watched that or okay. listened. Yeah. Okay. Just wondering, cause, uh, the New York times has a podcast called 1619. Yeah, it's, it's through the New York times. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah yes. I, I bought it. I haven't, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but yeah, I, so you listen to it. Yeah, it's great. And CPS adopted it. Um, it's more a curriculum, I think, for like middle and high school students. Mm-hmm. But it's wonderful when you have that sort of support coming from the top down. Um, there's a lot going on in a lot of major districts in the way of like developing departments of equity and really looking at, you know, um, how equity does or does not play out within the classroom and school space. So to kind of go back to answering your question, it can definitely come down from the top, but certainly you can have a very like unsupportive district, like the one that I worked for for the past four years that did not seem at all interested in equity. I mean, of course they just put out a statement, but 
I'm unconvinced that they really are pro-Black and interested in making their district more equitable. And um, yeah, in, in a lot of ways, we just had to come up with our own stuff if we wanted to bring those sorts of lessons into the classroom. And how, how does your husband kind of navigate all of this? Because obviously um, he's coming from a, a different place than you are. So how does he navigate everything that's going on now and also just um, raising your child? I'm hesitant to speak for Trey because he's, you know, his own person. Um, but I think in general, he does what he does because he's, amazing and he's um you know sort of had his life experience which has shaped who he is um within the school setting he's a behaviorist so um his work looks a little bit different than mine I'm more like the academics and he's more the behavior and um sort of you know how the kids are doing social emotionally um but yeah and I think with Emmett he loves him and there have definitely been moments where uh because Emmett is lighter people have wondered if Trey's his dad but um you know oh people are ignorant yeah it, it must be really well I know it will be really great for Emmett growing up with two parents who have so much knowledge and education on, like you said, the academic side coming from you and then from your husband, the behavior and emotional side. That's a really great combination for a kid to grow up with. Yeah, we hope so. We really got uh, quite an energetic kid here. So uh, we joke that like, no, Trey's really good with like every kid out there. Just, you know, Trey will connect with that kid. He has like the most compassion of really anybody that I've ever met when it comes to kids in school settings um but Emmett gets under his skin like nobody else it's pretty funny to watch like <laughs> no kid gets to him by his own but I guess that's how it goes of course yeah well I want let's talk about Emmett for a second tell us the origin of his name yeah so that was in the post that you mentioned mm -hmm. um and that was actually part of it because people kept spelling his name wrong and it was like really pissing us off we sort of did what I think a lot of people do and we were going through like, you know, list after list of names and then we stumbled on the name Emmett and we both immediately thought of Emmett Till, which um, is a boy from Chicago who was horribly murdered and um, yeah, when we heard that name, we both just thought of him and we really wanted to honor his memory. Um, and especially um, Emmett's, Emmett Till's mother um, was incredibly uh, strong. Like, I, I, don't, I don't even know how she did it, but she called so many people um, after Emmett was murdered and uh, got it to where a lot of people showed up for his funeral and she had an open casket so people could see how he was tortured and brutalized. Um, and that was a really big moment in the country at that time. Um, and it had, you know, had a big impact on the civil rights movement. And yeah, we just felt like that would be a good way to honor Emmett Till's legacy. Um, and 
it was a funny coincidence, Trey joked that he wanted to name our son Greatness. I said, no. <laughs> and uh, when we looked up Emmett, it means like powerful or great or something like that. So it felt oh, like, um, yeah, That's it felt really cool. Yeah, like it all kind of worked. Um, so yeah, we wanted to give him a name that really meant something to us. And so when we came upon that, we both did a name for him. It's really it, beautiful. Yeah, it seemed to just be perfect for both of you, what you guys were both looking for. Yeah, well, and the funny thing is, so when people misspell it, I think they think we named him after Emmett Smith because Trey played football in college. Um, and so they spell it with an I, but it's E-M-M-E-T-T. Um, and the funny thing too is that I had uh, last year, I taught a class, I'm normally a special education teacher, but um, I wanted all of my kids to go, um, it's called mainstreaming when they go out of the self-contained special ed class and they go into the general education class. And so in order for them to all go for this time called English language development, which like side note is just such a complete waste at least the way my district did it. But it was great for my kids because they got to be with their general education peers. And so, of course, I always tell the kids, you know, about my life. And they knew I had a baby, Emmett. And so they all thought I named him Emmett after some <laughs> character in, like, a Lego movie. I don't even know. It's like, oh, you named him, like, the, the kid in Lego movie. I was like, no. <laughs> and it was great. Um, these are kids who are from the east side of San Jose, which is predominantly Mexican families, Mexican-American, and then also immigrant, and um, none of them had heard of Emmett Till, so it was a learning moment where I got to teach them all about Emmett Till, and we had a very sobering conversation about white supremacy and American history, and those are kind of powerful moments, right, to have with kids where they're like, wow, I didn't know people did that, and you're like, yeah, people did that to a kid who is about your age. And that's a conversation they will not forget. Yeah. I don't yeah. think so. I, we had a few of those. It was a good group. They were a very, very thoughtful group. That's actually originally why I wanted you, like when we first started the podcast, to be on the podcast was to talk about the educational system because I've learned so much <laughs> from you and it's kind of scary so that'll have to be another thing that you come yeah, on and talk it about because it's like all kinds of fucked up everywhere oh i totally especially in california man like i'm kind of glad i got out of there it's it's really bad um all over but california is doing a lot wrong ay 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 yeah and people don't know california public schools are in the bottom 10 like for, for between 40 and 50th, they're ranked. Great. Yeah. So Fantastic. Think about that when you have kids <laughs> in California for all those taxes you pay. Right. Great. Yeah. Man, this was a really great conversation. Yeah. Really was. And you're so obviously, I mean, we knew this because we've talked to you, we know you, but you're so articulate and like you explain things in a way that I feel like is really easy for people to grasp. So thank you. Whether or not they like it. Well, you know, that's not what this podcast is about. Right. <laughs> there you go. There you go.
to, to end okay. things off, what are you hoping the future is like for Emmett? That's a good question. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, you know, it's like we have these short-term decisions we make about like where we live, like what neighborhood do we live in? Um, part of why we moved from San Jose to Chicago is just to be around more black people because um, Santa Clara County, 2% of the population is black. I want to talk about anti-black. Oof. But I think in some ways, as we think about where to like buy a house is... Um, how much of the population is biracial. And I think, you know, uh, more and more we see interracial couples and we see, you know, biracial kids. And I think, you know, all of it is beautiful, but especially seeing um, cultures intersect. Like Trey and I certainly come from very different worlds, right? I grew up rich white girl in the suburbs of Chicago and he grew up a black kid in South Central LA. And so it's pretty cool. Like you said, Laura, that um, Emmett's his own little entity within all of that. So I definitely would love to see a world um, that with more biracial kids, just because I think, like I've said to people, Emmett is, he's going to teach us a lot because neither of us is biracial. We don't know what that's like to you know, kind of be in those two worlds. Um, but I think if we really want to move the needle in this country in terms of, you know, getting back to that idea of being more pro-Black, being actually pro-Black, being less anti-Black, because I think that's the bigger piece is that right now this country is incredibly anti-Black. Um, we're going to have to see white people give up some of their power. And I'm not sure that's going to happen without a fight. So we've got a long road ahead. Um, but you know, I think white people are going to have to, I, I do believe in reparations. I'm not sure exactly what that's going to look like, but I do think there is a huge debt owed in this country. Um, if you've ever seen, like, I don't know if either of you have seen Roots. Have you seen that no. series? Yeah, we had well, to watch it in high school for school. Did you? Yeah. Watch Roots in high school? I'm, I'm pretty sure. The one with LeVar Burton? Yeah. Yeah, There, there's a new one. I haven't seen the older one. I watched the newer one. I'm ashamed to say I didn't watch it until this year. Um, but I would definitely encourage you, Laura, to watch it. And Asia, if you want to rewatch it. Um, but it chronicles a family's lineage from the time... Um, the family member is a uh, family member is taken from um, West Africa and brought over to the United States and enslaved. And I mean, it really illustrates just what it means to be an African American person in this country and have, you know, this lineage of being enslaved and, you know, working without any payment. There was never, you know, the 40 acres and a mule. That shit did not happen. There's a financial piece that white people are going to have to give up. I don't think they will do it willingly. No. <laughs> and um, yeah, there's other pieces too. You know, who's making decisions? Who's sitting in these positions of power? That's like when I talk about the district I worked for last year, they put out this statement about Black Lives Matter. There's not one Black person on the school board. There's not one black person in the superintendent's office. There's not one black person in a manager position. There's not one, I don't think there's one black principal. So great, black lives matter. Which ones? 
<laughs> like black you know, lives I, matter, but we're going to go ahead and make all the decisions for you. Kind of. Right. Yeah. And yeah. look at, you know, when we talk about education, like Asia said, this is for another day, but I mean, look at literacy rates with black kids. If you're not teaching black people how to read that in and of itself is a civil rights issue. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's a lot of pieces here, but there's going to have to be a shift in power. And like I said, I, I don't know that white people will give that up willingly. So we will see where we go from here. But, you know, in the meantime, I think it's great to have conversations like this one and get people thinking and talking. And I hope that, you know, there's action that comes along with it as well. I think so. I think that people are now understanding kind of their roles and how they can assist in the pro-Black movement. And then just outside of that, it's also like, I think people are also now understanding the importance of, um, like in terms of like school districts and stuff, uh, the importance of kind of voting in local elections now and the importance of how that kind of shapes mm -hmm. um, not only like your school system, but also kind of budgets that go, yeah. you know, every which way as well. So I don't think that we'll see an immediate change, but hopefully, you know, there's something that we can see in the next couple years. Yeah. 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 I definitely think people need to pay attention at the local level. Um, I definitely think there's a piece with regards to communities and housing. Um, I'm reading a book right now called The Color of Law, which just goes into great detail about redlining and how that has just really fucked up society. Um, to where like a lot of the generational wealth that we see that white people have is related to the fact that their grandparents had access to the GI Bill and Black people were not given that same access. Black veterans were denied the GI Bill to use on home ownership. <laughs> right? Wow. And then that directly impacts schools because where you go to school depends on where you live. Yep. So that's another piece where I think if like communities were really committed to pro-Blackness, you got a subsidized, you, you, had, you need to subsidize Black home ownership one way or the other. And people just don't like that, right? They think about it as a handout. Oh, come on, people have to work, blah, blah, blah. But if you're really putting together all these pieces, you see that like white people haven't necessarily worked harder than black people for what they have. This has all been constructed very deliberately. Well, it's so. from the bottom up, right? When you're giving, when you're given more opportunity from the start and you're completely stripped of all of your opportunity and your freedom from the start, naturally that first portion of the population, the one given more opportunity is going to thrive regardless yep. of what type of work or how hard they're working or how 100%. long they're working. Yeah. So yeah, I think there's a lot of pieces here where we could see action um, to get to a more equitable society, but I, I, I do want people, especially white people, to realize if you really want that, like that you're gonna have to give something up. And like I said, I just think that's gonna be a very tough pill to swallow. I know we've men we've referenced the 1619 podcast. You've mentioned a couple of different books. What are some of your favorite 
outlets, whether it's a book, a podcast, a TV show right now, I know you said Roots, the series, Yes. Um, that you would recommend our listeners oh, check out? That's a good question. Yeah. Um, definitely, if you're a teacher or you're, you know, interested in things within like the educational landscape, Lisa Delpit is just profound. Um, she wrote uh, an essay in 1980 that sadly enough still applies. Um, her first book is uh, Other People's Children. Her second book written, in, which is a collection of essays, which includes um, the one I just mentioned. Her second book was written in 2014. It's called Multiplication is for White People, Raising Expectations for Other People's Children. She really unpacks um, the history of anti-Blackness in the country, um, how that impacts kids in the classroom. The, the title is a quote that a Black kid said to her, multiplication is for white people. Uh, black kids only need to learn how to add and subtract, um, which just kind of illustrates how anti-Blackness can be internalized, right, by Black students when they're in that um, culture of, like, white supremacy within the school setting. Um, and then documentaries that I love. Um, it, there's one called Made in America, The Crips and the Bloods, which I watched many years ago, maybe like 2010. So it's not new, but it, it's, I could watch it like over and over. It's really good. And um, I think it really helps people to understand exactly like um, gang violence, like how that um, came to be, like where that came from. It starts out with, um, it's also in LA. So if you have listeners in LA and you're interested to learn a little bit about LA's history, it's really good. Um, and yeah, it starts out with a group of boys who wanted a club, right? It's a very natural sort of human instinct to join a group, to be a part of something. And they weren't allowed to be in the Boy Scouts because they were black. So um, just little things here and there where I think as white people, you don't even realize, right, that they that people could have been denied access to things like that. Not the Boy Scouts. So I would say Made in America, The Crips and the Bloods, 13th, if you haven't seen it, which directly relates to the book, The New Jim Crow, which was a big one for me, taught me a lot about the way this system and this country has been constructed. Um, and then, yeah, The Color of Law, Truth, and Don't Close Your Eyes. Yeah. Just I'm watch the watch whole thing. Okay. It's long. It's like eight hours long. It's it's like a docu or you know it's like a TV series, mini series or however you call it. Listen, if um, we can binge watch Handmaid's Tale, we can binge watch. Hello, Roots, okay. Hello. <laughs> yeah. So those I there's probably more that I'll think of after we get off the call, but I think that would be a good start for people if they are unfamiliar with any of those to give them a try. And when you think of more, just text me and then I'll put it in the show notes. And people yeah, perfect. Go ahead and look I down love there. it. Awesome. Well, thank you both for having me on. Thank Megan, you thank so you much so much for joining yeah. us. Yes, yeah. we love you. We appreciate you.